Hello, world singers. My name is Tyler. And my name is Brooke. And this is Cosmere Conversations. Welcome back. We are in the middle of our exploration of Cosmere religions. If you are the type of person that is just down for the Cosmere in any way, shape, or form, continue to listen to this episode. If you kind of want to start from the beginning, volume one awaits, and you can go back and check that out. We talked about last time Rashar and Skadriel, and discussed a bunch of the different religious beliefs throughout the history of those two planets. And today we are going to tackle a variety of different planets throughout the Cosmere. Starting with Cell, on which we get the book Elantris, which is maybe the most religion-focused Cosmere work to date. It does seem to have a real intricate connection and a focus by Brandon on tying in the religion and the way that religions are fighting each other, the politics of the world, the magic of the world. Everything is very connected to the religion on cell, or at least in this area. One of the religions. Yeah. Yeah. Because we got in Elantris, one of the main characters, Hrathen, is a priest. And we spoke last episode about how there is kind of a spectrum as to how integrated religion is within a society or a planet and how connected it is to all of the other aspects of that population. Last episode, we talked about Scadriel, not super connected. Rashar, very connected. And... Cell is another place where it seems that religion is pretty unavoidably connected with almost every other aspect of life for the people who live there. So do you want to start with, and all of these religions, and pretty much all the time for me, pronunciation, not my strong point, but we're going to give it our best shot. Let's start with Shu Kessig. Yeah, There is a pretty well laid out history of religion on Cell, unlike uh, on some of the other planets in the Cosmere. Shu Kaseg is the sort of original religion that many of the current day Cell religions come from. It's originally from a Jindo priest named Kaseg, and his teachings were that all of mankind was united. He preached for unity and he had two disciples named Dereth and Korath who collected his teachings. And then later, you know, after he died, they disagreed on what it meant to achieve the unity that Kaseg advocated for. So in a parallel to religions on earth, this has some similarities to Islam, which started with, in their belief, the prophet Muhammad, who had two followers who kind of disagreed about the teachings of Muhammad. And then you get the biggest branches of Sunni and Shia 
Islam, respectively. And so this kind of similarly happened on Cell, where the religions kind of split right at the beginning or right after the founder died. Yeah, absolutely. And so on Cell, Karath took the perspective that people should sort of passively achieve this unity by, you know, being persuaded to love each other. And Dareth thought that if people, you know, wouldn't willingly love each other, that they should be dominated and then forced to unite. Um, And that that would mean a central government, essentially. He thought unity was really like, everything is united. We are all under one umbrella, whether you want to be or not. Yeah, and definitely we've seen that on our own planet. Definitely seems like there is uh, some parallels when it comes to these religions on cell. I think that what I find most interesting and unique is this belief is so interwoven into the religions because we have missionaries and people who are from a different land in Elantris preaching and trying to convert a religious yeah. population. So missionaries, you know, all over the world, all different types of religions either had didn't have missionaries, but like that is a unique aspect and one of the examples of where cell is in its development to give a comparison in our own world to like the 14-1500s when like the mm. worlds were kind of all yeah. clashing, the continents were being crossed and and you got all these trade routes opening up. That's kind of what it seems like is going on in cell and part of that is these religions clashing and being shared and you know new converse and new cities all this type of crazy stuff. In particular as you were alluding to the a specific branch of religion that Hrathen is a part of, we start to see that, you know, he is a warrior priest of Shudareth, so this branch that believes everyone should be under one government. And it is, in fact, part of an empire that is expanding its power and influence at the time we come into Elantris. And that's probably one of the most uh, scary things for the people of Elantris is that they have this uh, failing of the city of Elantris, they're kind of like beacon and where a lot of their own religious belief is tied up in the Elantrians and what that magic means. Yeah, and that's an interesting sort of fly in the ointment here. The Elantrians are part of a like more ancient, some would consider a more primitive religion where before uh, outside influence, the people who lived in Erelon, the city around Elantris, worshipped the Elantrians, these magical Why wouldn't you? people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then when they were evangelized to the you know disciples, the prophets that came to evangelize this new religion to them, sort of adapted the religion that they were evangelizing to the existing beliefs of the population of Erelon and kind of worked it all together, right, to make it, like, more palatable to that population. And so they changed the name of God. Originally, it was a Jindo word, Dashu. They changed it to Domi, which is based on an aeon, right, part of the language of Erelon. The aeon Omi, meaning love, and they used that aeon to represent the church, which some people 
considered to be like pagan. You know, obviously no one's ever happy. There's a compromise, which as we know is to be halfway happy. The depth and the intricacies of this religion define so much of the backstory and the influences of all the different characters that we meet in Elantris, Hrathen most obviously, but what I think is most uh, most interesting is the fact that this division between Shu Dureth and Shu Korath represents in such a realistic fashion or in a way that just makes sense. We have so many examples throughout our own history about how larger religions that were part of an expansive empire adopted or changed themselves to local customs and to local religions. The name of something is very obvious, but what also came with it were cultural practices in the way that like the worship is done. Yeah, like the history behind modern day Easter and Christmas coinciding with festivals that already existed in certain populations. It's very similar. And just this like picture that we have on cell of the way that a religion grows and changes and splits over time is pretty cool. And I think it's one of the most interesting things about Cell is that we got this kind of one-off early work of Brandon's that he has not written a sequel to. Now, not every one of his works has a sequel, but a lot of them do. I mean, a lot of them have follow-ups, and I think Cell, like uh, Nalthus, is one of the current stories without a follow-up. But the groundwork is all there. The religious history we know was set up on kind of a cliffhanger because Harathan was, in his perspective, performing a noble mission of last-ditch effort before the invasion. He sees it as like trying to save the souls of an entire city. Yeah. Because in the empire is coming behind the priest, the preachers the religious figures are bringing their belief system but also their culture and they are the first wave of an empire and a military that is grinding its way towards elantris in this religion as we said before hrathen is a warrior priest Mm -hmm. they're not just priests like he wears a full suit of armor and he has some magic too does everyone in Shudareth have access to the type of no, hemology manipulation? I don't believe so. So yeah, that's another good point. We've talked about it previously on the podcast, but since this is our religions episode, we should say that Shudareth is the religion that the Dakor Monastery is a part of. But that is like a specific sect of monks. No, yes. not all of the Durethi priests our decor. Exactly. They're like the extra super, super monks. Yeah. Yeah. And that is replicated on earth in the religions that we're familiar with and have seen practice throughout history where certain people, you know, the most devout, the most whatever, the most most, you know, are always trying to kind of create uh, groups 
that are smaller and inside the main group that have some certain practice. Well, yeah, and I would say it doesn't even always have to do with being the most, but just that there are different groups who choose to express their faith in, in different, different ways. ways, right? So there may be like a convent of nuns who dedicate themselves to caring for children. Yeah. There may be another convent of nuns who dedicate themselves to something different, a different yeah. way of expressing their faith. So hopefully that there are other monasteries within the Dureth religion that are, you know, nicer, maybe. Well, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you... This is when you can get so lost in the weeds, and we don't want to go too deep down the rabbit hole, but the concept of religion as a interwoven aspect of societal change, like religion is able to change, and it's able to kind of adapt, and it's very flexible, and as you were saying, like, you know, Christmas iconography from northern germany pine trees and little ornaments hanging off of and lights like that's germanic and yet you go to holidays in los angeles in the middle of the desert uh and it you got the same things going on and that's part of the ability of religion the unique aspect of religion is it's this kind of idea that can it's like a meme, you know, it, it morphs yeah, and changes it over time and kind of picks up on the influence of the culture around it. And then they pass it on in their own way. And it's this idea that grows in an organic method. And so I would definitely think that, you know, some of the people are like Harathan and the Dakur Monastery, but other people in Shudareth have got to be operating with the same underlying religious belief, yeah. but a different method and well, different mindset. Well, that's a good point, actually, because Frathen is a good example. He starts at the Dakor Monastery, and then he's, like, too much of a wimp to yeah, a little bit, but... go through. I mean, in quotations, yeah. because he's actually just, like, a decent human being and is like, hmm, I don't feel great about, like, live sacrifices. Not sure this is really for me. Like, I don't want to be in the Dakor Monastery. And that's something that Delaf looks at him and is like oh, you're just a wimp. Like, we're the we're the, the real faithful monks, us, us in the decor. But in this way, like, Hrathen is a great example that there is variation across this religion. But I think, kind of going back to what you were saying about religion being intermixed with the religious and the political, particularly in a place like the Fjordal Empire, where the emperor is also the pope, essentially, of yeah. this religion. They call him Wern or Vern. With a W. Just, it's got a little bit of a, I think a Scandinavian. Yeah, very Scandinavian. Um, I mean, influences. It's called Fjordel. Exactly. Uh, so, <laughs> Fjords, anyone? It's basically Frozen. <laughs> frozen 2, out now in theaters. <laughs> We're not being paid for that. And the way that the variant Shukarath has been a focal point of the people of Erlon, the city around Elantris, and how they connected that to the Elantrians and the magic powers going on, it reminds me that the way that sometimes beliefs that go back thousands and thousands of years 
the way they begin is often through some connection to a real focal point, a real point of geography. Um, a mountain explodes, and all of a sudden, uh, lava is pouring down, and then the god becomes something like an exploding mountain, you know, a fiery beast, uh, some type of manipulation or cultures that are near the coast often have like water yeah. deities or uh, creatures based on, on the sun uh, as like a, a focal point. It's just, it is so often connected to something real and tangible. And then in the Cosmere, we know that there's like magic and investiture that is pouring off and flowing through the shards on these different planets yeah and i think that's an interesting point in particular for cell because i think in other religions that we see in the cosmere it's easier to tie them to the specific realities that they are like stemming from mm -hmm. whereas here on cell it's not immediately clear to me that this religion, you know, Shu Kaseg at its outset has anything to do with the shards of dominion and devotion. Now, do you recall if Cell is one of the planets where life existed, human life existed before the arrival of the shards? Oh, yes. I believe that the Arcanum states that humans existed on Cell pre-shard so it totally could be that shu kaseg is pre-shard religion or at least stems from something that was pre-shard and then changed over time and adapted and maybe adapted to the arrival of the shard because i feel like mm. yeah i think it also is a little bit interesting this might be like too deep of a poll too speculative but it's interesting that this religion is based on unity originally at the time that maybe that Adonalsium is breaking apart. I don't know. That seems like it's related. Like maybe Adonalsium is unity. And in so some is way. Dalinar. Dalinar is not unity. He says, I am unity. I know. This is a big thing debate in the cosmic <laughs> community. And. I do not participate. What all of these different Cosmere stories remind me of is that Brandon is kind of a explorer who's like unveiling the Cosmere for us, the reader. And when he is exploring around and finding these stories in the Cosmere, creating them, there are ones that become more profitable or more interesting to him for whatever reason and those become the stormlight archive and scadrill era one and two and mistborn secret history and cell has been like marked he's he's definitely you know done some exploration around the area but there's also so much more it's like the so biggest much. dark spot in the cosmere right now because even i mean i don't know if it's the biggest dark spot i think we have Sorry. more on yeah. cell than we do on nalthus because we have like the emperor's soul that explores other 
groups and yes, other a whole societies other empire, on yeah. the planet. Yeah, like the Rose Empire. We know that there are those weird souls stampers who use blood. Exactly. Right? Kind of like the Dakor, but their own version in that yeah. side of the continent. Yeah. And then we have seen the Jindo a little bit. I think there's one Jindo character in Elantris, but we don't really know anything else about their culture or religion other than this. It's the origin of Shukaseg, and they have some kind of martial art based magic it seems so there's plenty more to get here that brandon has laid the foundation for and we're just waiting for him to build on it another one that we certainly are waiting for the follow-up which i believe has already been named nightblood or at least pre-title is called nightblood jumping over to nalthus Nalthus perhaps has the most obvious example of religion as the key element of plot, where on Cell it's happening in the background of everything and it affects everything and characters' motivations. On Nalthus, religion is literally the reason for the existence of the returned. We are inside the religion. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It is such a wonderfully simple and yet instantly intricate and explorable way of diving into Nalthus. Just be like, oh, now you're in the court of the gods. Well, and I think it's an interesting culture and environment to make the choice to tell the story from within the religion. All of the other stories that we get, we see the religion from outside. And I think actually by taking the cult of return and introducing the reader to it from the inside of the religion leaves more mystery rather than revealing more about it, which would be maybe the more uh, instinctive thing that you would think would happen. Yeah, it's like that idea of the more you learn about a subject, the more intricate the subject becomes, the more you, know, the more you learn, the less you know type of quote. Uh, and that is what Nalthus feels like is we get dropped right in to the cult of the returned or what is also named the iridescent tones well we see the god king we see all of the returned like the focus of the religion however we come to realize that these figures of the religion actually have the least power within the religion so versus on cell when Vern is like the big all-powerful emperor, like the main religious dude has all the power. In this case, most of the power is actually being held by the priests and sycophants and the bureaucrats essentially who like run the religion and not actually the subjects of the religion. That's an excellent way to contrast the two because it's absolutely right. The Literally the more powerful character the God King is the one who's more imprisoned, but the returned who are clearly very powerful are also imprisoned and they are also controlled. The only one who kind of escapes from this is Vasher, who's basically, you know, snuck out from his uber powerful because he, he found a loophole basically. But I believe that Nalthus and the court of the gods is really the perfect way for Brandon to not just introduce a religion, but to build a story around it. What would it be like if there were gods, like the 
Greek gods or the Roman gods that had this role to play in society in a very active way where all the humans and the, the lesser you know, mortals are reliant and interact with the gods. It's a different thing than we see on many of the other planets. Not that humans never interact with the gods, but in such a clear and out there way. I think this is also a really interesting exploration and depiction of the concept of what would humans do if they became gods or like what would humans do when given godlike power yeah that kind of thought experiment this is an interesting take on that i think because in this circumstance they're not doing much of anything it's kind of like yes we do have the power to change the world but what do we do we sit at home in front of our televisions and read cosmere books and these people you know they come back from the dead they have tons of power they have people who worship them they could probably mobilize plenty of movements for the good of more people but they sit in their palaces they look at art They could choose to look any way that they wish to look, and they all choose to be statuesque and beautiful and, you know, the perfect version of physically attractive, and they're beautifully useless. Now, we mainly see and follow the religion back and forth from Siri and Light Song. What I love so much about Light Song as a character, and we've we've talked a lot about... Light Song is so great. What I think is best about his character is the way that he doubts his role. And as you were saying, he notices the hypocrisy of their power and their position, their stated goal, like what everybody tells and knows about the court of the gods is, oh, they have this one great purpose. They were chosen by God who we know uh, because of some word of Brandon's that the one who is choosing the returned is endowment, the shard on that planet. Uh, and she is giving them their immortal breath, the, the one breath that they need to have and the one that Light Song eventually gives up and sacrifices himself for. So this is a known aspect of their religion that the gods are waiting to do something great and important. And that concept bothers Light Song so much that he has his character arc in the story. I want to draw a parallel here between Light Song and Dalinar. I think Light Song is similar to Dalinar's questioning of like, why don't we have shards that we can use to dig trenches, right? It's like essentially the same question that Light Song is asking the whole time is like, why do we have this power and it's not useful to a lot of people? And in fact, it's killing a lot of people. Which is such a a deep question that it makes sense that it's not one that I'm guessing Brandon has a great answer to because there are many examples of religions, governments, organizations all around the world that have a bunch of power, a bunch of organization, a bunch of money that could be doing one thing but have chosen and through momentum and through passive acceptance and through propaganda and through manipulation, but through all these different ways that kind of 
ends with not as much being done as could be done, even though the mission is so clear. Lightsong knows that he has one great thing to do, and most of the gods know that as well, and instead they're just waiting, waiting for something, and the wait is the problem. Like, just go do the something. Like, just go be amazing. Well, because every day that Light Song exists and doesn't use his power, he is literally taking the life of Another person. a person that, well, you know, he's supposed to be serving, essentially. Yeah, taking their breath. They don't actually have to die, do they? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're totally right. It's just they they take the breath. So the person is just a drab, but... I mean, still, that's oh, a drab. absolutely. <laughs> uh, one week is how long the normal divine breath would last. But every week, the person has to consume a breath and you know, turn a person into a drab uh, in order to maintain their life. So this is interesting. I just thought of like maybe originally when endowment sort of like conceived of this act of like, hey, maybe I'll send back some like particularly good people. Maybe the idea was like, I'll send you back with some power. You have one week to do a great thing for mankind. Like, go get him, buddy. Add into this idea. What about we know that there are often give and takes restrictions on power. Not even the shards are truly omnipotent. So imagine if the restriction that endowment has is she can only give out a certain number of these return slots you know there's a set number i'm just making it up but like 20 okay what if she only has 20 to give and her plan was you'll get one week and then you'll die and you'll come back and i'll recycle and so the 20 keeps going and instead these people are taking on to it exactly they're like old politicians that run for 50 years and never go on they just leave man just leave let someone new come into the slot because there's only one slot there's only one person that gets to be Uh whatever and there's only a certain number possible this is not confirmed but possible that could be returned that's i would imagine even a worse position yeah if she came up with this kind of loophole to whatever her own power limitation was and i was like hey humans be awesome, and I'll give you cool powers, and then we just, you know, keep paying it forward. Exactly. Do something great. Then come back to mama, I'll give you some more power. And instead we get a whole cult, literally name that, like, it's probably fine on their planet, uh, but <laughs> a literal cult that develops around these divine breath-bestowing individuals, and the religion is born. Then, of course, it becomes locked into the government. And like you said, the people who are the most, in quotes, powerful with investiture and breath are actually the least potent or able in their governmental system. Yeah. Okay. So here's what I'm thinking. People come back as returned. Ideally, right, you would have some kind of like shaman or, you know, group of elders who would find that returned person, like welcome them, be like, hi, welcome to your second life. Your purpose is to, you know, offer your divine breath in a great way for humanity, like guides them along their second life path. But somewhere along the way, that shaman or that group of elders was like, we could use this to our advantage. Like we can use this to make us powerful. 
And then, bam, here we are. I think that's probably exactly what happened in the history. And it's why the character of Scoot becomes so potent and emotional. And it's such a huge tie-in because Light Song is always questioning. He's like, I'm not right for this. This is, how dumb is this religion? He's pointing out all the flaws. He's like, I don't believe in me. So how do you believe in me? Exactly. And the reason that Light Song has earned this belief from Scoot is because Scoot knows his backstory and knows that Light Song saved his daughter because they're brothers or were brothers before his death. So he's the most true believer in this religion. And that is that relationship, that connection, that wonder that would be created is on display between Scoot and Light Song. You can just imagine what if every single time that endowment sent someone back it had this type of effect this type of a ripple effect on the family and the friends and the whole society and culture yeah, of like inspiring them to awe and wonder and kindness yes exact kindness the, i mean the most important thing is like they give away their breath in one big thing because they did something great the first time or they i think there's a little bit of a question about who exactly goes back light song was a good person but I don't know if it always has to be a good person. What I mean by that is... I don't know if it's like actually confirmed. Like it is confirmed in world, but that doesn't mean that it's real. Only because I know that part of what is happening is that when the person dies, for some reason, endowment selects them. And when they meet with endowment for a short period of time, they are given a vision of possible futures, like we've seen with other shards. And then they are asked if they want to return to try to impact. So I could kind of see this also as endowment, like, you know, picking out the cards that she thinks are best from the deck and then giving them the option to play their hand. Because obviously she can also see yeah. future stuff. Like she also has that ability. So she's playing some type of game too. Or at least I imagine that all the shards are kind of playing some game. We just don't know what it is. Let's move on to another section, I guess, of Nalthus, Pon Call. And the Pon Call religion has some similarities to the iridescent tones, but it doesn't include actually worshiping the returned it's more animistic so they are worshiping like the sea and some type of unity of the five gods they believe that they one of the five gods that they recognize is the ultimate voice that calls the returned into being so essentially they have a concept for the shard of endowment and then they put, as you said, some type of uh, spiritual belief into their natural world and their natural surroundings. Which is also interesting because we know that there is the flowers of Edgley, which is another outpouring of like power from endowment. Yeah, totally correct. Just the, the tears of Edgley. Oh, yeah. Instead of the flowers, but the tears. they are flowers. Exactly. They are (laughs) flowers and they are highly desired because of their ability to produce dyes uh, that hold and are incredibly bright. So it becomes the focal point of the economic power of 
Haladrin. Because they're the best for awakening, right? It's like the most powerful conversion for their magic. So there is some kind of investiture-ish type thing. Oh, it's definitely investiture-based because they only grow in one place. And it is believed to either be the site of endowment's power on the planet or at least some connection to her in the past you know maybe where she transcended maybe the first spot that she walked uh we don't have like the backstory but it is definitely 100 percent connected to the shard of endowment itself and the vessel who is named edgley yeah so the pawn call do have that seed of truth of like their world is divine and is invested by their shard what about Austraism, which is the last of the religions we'll look at on Nalthus, because the... Yeah, Austraism is the religion that Siri and Vivenna start with. So they are both from Idris, the sort of neighboring kingdom to Halandren, and there they worship Austra, who they also call the god of colors. And I think it's really interesting how these two societies both have a basis of like worship of color and take it in two completely different directions. Because one of the cultural aspects of City of Idris and the followers and worshipers is that they themselves downplay any wearing of color or certainly when it comes to those with the royal locks, you got to keep that under control because to wear bright colors is to offend God or to kind of it's steal like, from their glory. Yeah, exactly. They like want to downplay themselves as much as possible to not take anything away from their God. So if their God is everything colorful, they have to be drab. Otherwise, it is blasphemous, right? Like they are trying too much to be like God. And this is why we have the original conflict or tension between Siri and Vivenna, because Vivenna is seen as the perfect example of a, a a believer and a follower and a perfect representative for their country, in part because she's able to control her royal locks. She seems to, though that's always an aspect of Warbreaker, is that what appears on the outside is not always what's going on but siri feels different and she is the one that is like an outsider because of her love of color and brightness and the experience that she wants to have is different than the one that is being allowed by the religious society and aspects of that religion in her society and ostracism has some fundamental tenets that they call the five visions, which are supposedly visions that were had by the first returned person, Vo, and then communicated to, you know, the people before he ended up dying. And they not only talk about downplaying your outward appearance, like you said, controlling the royal locks, etc., you know, wearing plain clothing, but also like being conservative with your inner aspect as well of like it emphasizes sacrifice being very humble looking out for other people before you no kind of 
ostentation at all. You are meant to downplay yourself in every way and like only be a vessel for helping others, basically. When it comes to Vivena and Siri both entering into the the world of Halandrin, one of the other things that they have to get over, Vivena specifically, is the concept that breaths are uniquely tied and intimately tied to the soul of the human. They believe in a much stronger connection between the breath and the soul, and to separate those two or to use the breath of another person, to hold the breath of another person is sacrilege. Yeah, it's like a defilement, essentially. You are stealing someone's soul. Yeah, part of someone's soul at the very least, which yeah. is, I'm pretty sure, just as bad. I don't yeah, think you yeah. <laughs> get away with, oh, no, no, it's, I just stole part of your soul. It's totally fine. And so Awakening has this kind of like witchcraft or black magic. They see it almost like like a Dakor's power, right? Of like you had to sacrifice somebody to get this power. And they're not wrong in some ways. There's yeah, always exactly. got to be like, some loss. They're like, not totally wrong. In the world that Brandon creates, these fantasy worlds, we talked a lot about hard magic and soft magic systems. And one of the aspects of hard magic system is that there is trade-off. Yeah, I think it makes this so much more interesting rather than just having an endless well of power right mm -hmm. that people can just awaken 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 like look at all the cool things i can do there are real life consequences for all of the things that they do and everything has to go through like an actual conversion process they can't just do magic they have to use a color think about what they want to happen frame the correct command and then thinking about these moral considerations of like, do how did I get these breaths? Like, is it right? Is it not right? Obviously, it's something that our main characters overcome. And we know Vivenna holds some breaths as she jumps over to Rashar, or is at least able to find a conversion method, which is why we believe, not hard confirmed, but we believe that Vasher chose to go to Rashar is because he has some way of taking in Stormlight, some type of conversion, and he needs that in order to survive, as he is a returned, one of the five scholars. And so we assume that either Vivenna carried over some breaths or also knew that conversion method on Rashar. Let's jump over to Taldane, a planet that we see almost exclusively through the White Sand novels, but is home to autonomy, who is just about everywhere in the Cosmere that we know of. So we expect Haldane to continually come up uh, through autonomy and kind of learn more about Taldane over and time. And Chris. Chris is obviously our Cosmere scholar running around the universe. But what I found so interesting about the creation of the White Sand novels is that once again, the magic system was uniquely connected to the geography of the world, the the climate of the world, the politics of the world. All of them are intermixed, interwoven, and it's done in, again, a very unique way. And a lot of the plot of White Sand centers around the religion and the extremists of the religion as well as just kind of your average follower like 
Ice, who's just, you know, she's a pretty average woman, but she is, you know, devout in her religion. Well, she's also a badass. She is. That is true. With the best storyline in that book. But you have Kenton, who becomes the leader of this quasi-religious quasi-political i know it's it's not religious but they have magic powers so therefore people kind of worship them well it's actually atheistic which exactly is the 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 problem yeah well the the point for other characters ice specifically is that kenton's existence challenges her belief system it's like a slap in the face it's exactly the same as like syrian vivenna where idris sees using color as blasphemous whereas halandren sees it as a celebration of their god the sand masters don't necessarily see it as a celebration of the sand lord but to ice and the other followers of the kurtza religion it's a blasphemy their god is the sand god and you can't just fling him around like that <laughs> well and i think it's a something also about the people of idris It's about kind of abusing the power of God because for the people who worship and follow the sand lord and practice Kurtza, they have this concept that the sun is a manifestation of the sand lord. In reality, we know that the sun in the Taldane system is autonomy's source of investiture. Yes. And the power that the sand masters and ken specifically use is about taking that investiture taking that magic that belongs to autonomy and manipulating it and changing it and so i kind of see it in the same way as like you know taking the colors from the color god would be blasphemous it makes a lot of sense but it's just it's done in a consistent way across the cosmere but in unique ways on each of the planets yeah absolutely and so we see between these two groups the kurtzians and the dm of sandmasters obviously they don't agree and the dm has a big part in the government of their shared country los and they have had a lot of wars in the past and we hop into the story originally at a time when there is peace between them which is then the catalyst for the whole story is that the sandmasters get attacked by Kurtzians. What I love about the potential of Taldane is that not only are there problems and divisions on day side, but we also have the problem that the dark siders are coming and interacting more and more with the day siders. And Chris is just one example, but clearly there's like small enclaves of dark siders that are interacting and they are bringing their own belief systems. And if all the people who live on Dayside and basically kind of all have some respect for the sun. What's going to happen when those people are running into literally their opposites? Yeah, it does beg a very interesting question of if your entire religion is based on the fact that you are on Dayside, basically the sun, the sand, what exists on Darkside? It's a big mystery because even in the White Sand volumes, we get very, very little about dark side yeah and i can't remember if ice has any kind of reaction to the dark side or something yeah like you would think at least i could imagine that people who worshiped the sun like this 
would imagine that people who lived on part of the planet that the sun never touched, you would think like, oh, well, God must hate them. Like they must be bad people. They live their entire lives. In shadow. Yeah. Outside of God's love, God's presence, etc. That's why I believe that Taldane is, I mean, we're seeing like a civil war uh, or a couple of civil wars on Rashar, but Taldane is a planet that seems to just go to war with itself and like consume itself. We know the Darksiders are working on weapons. Uh, we know that the Daysiders have access, more access to the source of investiture and magic. So there's this huge potential conflict that has been introduced. And we know that it was introduced in our timeline of the Cosmere in the distant past. That yeah. through some type of... Uh, problem of relativity something that chris is doing while she's traveling she's super super old in the cosmere perspective uh but has aged slowly i'm thinking like ender in the sequel to ender's game for those who know that well it's, a, it's like a 30 plus year old book so i guess i could spoil it but basically because of relativity he's able to travel far in the future and only grow up uh you know 30 40 years to him but thousands of years go by in the universe and so i feel like chris is kind of doing something similar but she could have also just discovered some cool magic like hoid yeah i put her and hoid in the same category but i think you make a good point that taldane is an interesting like petri dish sort of for the concept that we've talked about on this podcast before of how investiture or magic can delay what might be typical technological and advances so on day side where they have investiture they do not have firearms on dark side we assume they don't have investiture it seems you know new to chris they are starting to develop technology so i think that's sort of an interesting thing to see all on this one planet absolutely and it begs the question of like what is going to happen on taldane yeah, as they start to intermix. Exactly. Yeah. We could then just carry that over and ask what is going to happen when planets in the Cosmere start to intermix. And we've already seen the first wave are kind of priests in Hoyd and Chris and the 17 Shard. And these well, people who are kind of traveling throughout the Cosmere, they're kind of like that first wave showing up on other planets and influencing in one way or another small to start but eventually they might be bringing the empire behind well i was thinking about first of the sun where we see a very very technologically advanced civilization interacting with what would be considered a very primitive civilization and like we see what happens when those two worlds come together yeah i mean resentment on the part of six of the dusk a kind of yeah, cynicism like a completely catastrophic change in culture yeah, society. breaks everything down yeah the roles that people play within their society like it it changes everything and it changes it artificially and it changes it faster than the people can really keep up with or you know sustain in a healthy way for their whole ecosystem it is one of the most fascinating things to look at in history is if you are studying 
any area, any people, any culture, any religion, any group at all, and then a new outside force is introduced, all of a sudden you go, okay, something's going to happen. It's going to be war. It's going to be disease. It's going to be conflict. It's going to be cooperation. It's going to be a little bit of everything. It's going to be crazy. And certainly that is the history of humanity that we can observe. And Brandon is translating that into these books in such a fascinating way. And because we just have the short story for First of the Sun, I think that it's one of the things that I'm most excited for in the future because it might be the answer to a lot of the questions that we're asking now, but we don't have the full answer. We just have this like brief little yeah. glimpse, but it, it might be the answer to a lot of our questions once it's fleshed out and we'll be like, oh man, first of the sun was key. It was cornerstone it i was already feel that way but. of course like we can but that's more speculation i'm talking about like hardcore in yeah the, it's just for like, sure if but we like, find out yeah, that wax the, and wayne's descendants are actually the people who showed up on first of the sun and that they like some type of crazy connection that's like distant back to the scadrians or something i'm gonna lose my mind and i just think i think that story is the key to themes and concepts mm -hmm. that we are going to see all across the Cosmere. In this long horse race that is our Cosmere experience, I got some money on First of the Sun. It's going to be big time, peeps. It's going to be big. <laughs> just like betting on Google when they're still in the garage. Yeah, exactly. Just like, yeah, I'm, exactly. Calling, I'm calling the shot. <laughs> yeah. Just like the babe. Just <laughs> First of the Sun pointed out people in the sky, in the stars. These two religion episodes certainly didn't cover every religion in the cosmere we know we just kind of picked well, a couple schedule alone we could have done like 50 exactly but we're not saved people yeah uh, we what do you expect from us i think both of the episodes have shown that the way that brandon incorporates his own religious belief his historical knowledge of religions on earth and he infuses that into his world building and his writing and his characters and their motivations. And maybe, maybe the overall mystery of the Cosmere will all be unraveled around a religious or spiritual knot. And that this huge journey I mean, is going to yeah. be super tied together in an intricate way. That's what we are all hoping for, a type yeah. of wheel of time. I think that's unavoidable. It is at this point, like... The big dream it's of all, all of us. It's all based on ad nauseum. Of course. And like we want the perfect. Spinning together. We want it all to be woven together. And it feels woven together. And all of these characters and stories feel real because of Brandon's dedication to an understanding of religions, both real and fictional. Well, and what a great example of what it truly means to be a great writer that not only do you have to have excellent command of the language that you're writing in and a creative mind to come up with these things but you also have to be like a scholar and a historian and you have to understand politics and religion and all of these other elements that that we've been looking at that all blend together and when someone can do all of that, which is an incredibly masterful 
feat in and of itself. They can create these incredible worlds and this world building that gives the reader an experience that transcends what we may find in an average novel. So, Brandon, keep on writing. We'll keep on reading. Having Cosmere Conversations. You can follow us along. Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, we're everywhere. Until next time, life before death. Strength before weakness. Journey before destination. 